Welcome to the Health Design Podcast, brought to you by the Journal of Health. My name is Cheryl Janis, and I am sitting in today for Moyes Jiwa because, well, today we have the interview microphone turned around and facing him. We're going to speak about his new book, The Art of Doctoring. Moyes, hello, and welcome to your show. Thank you so much, Cheryl. It's uh, I'm thrilled that you accepted the, the offer to interview me about this book. It's something I'm very excited about. Well, it's, it's my pleasure and an honor to be here. My first question is about your book, The Art of Doctoring. It contains lots of stories that illustrate how people interact with their family doctor. Do you have a favorite story? And if so, can you share it now? Sure, that's that's a great question. And I suppose I should start by talking about why the book is so full of stories. And really, it goes back to my clinical training, and I'm sure this will resonate with many of my colleagues, that we learn our medicine through stories. We learn our medicine through sharing the stories of people that we've looked after. And that essentially, I mean, if you go to any any clinic, any hospital, anywhere, you will hear these things being recounted and people uh, learning from those experiences. So my favorite story is one that uh, goes back many, many years to when I was a, a junior doctor. The sun is out very, very early in the morning. So you really don't know what time it is when you open your eyes. It could be 10 o'clock in the morning or it could be 5 o'clock in the morning. It could be any time. And the phone rang and this person sounded like a young child on the phone saying, doctor, would you come and see my brother? And I couldn't quite get much more information out of this person. And, and I said, you know, what are you worried about? And she said, oh, he's, he's got a sore throat and he's really not well. And will you come and see him? And rather than argue with a child on the phone, I decided that I would <laughs> hop in the car and go and, go and see this chap. Then I looked at my watch and I realized it was five o'clock in the morning and I started to get grumpy. And I'm thinking to myself, um, you know, why would somebody call you out at five o'clock in the morning with a sore throat? I'm getting more and more grumpy as time goes by. And I finally arrived <laughs> at the home. And there is this young man sitting in his lounge room, in the, in the sitting room, as we call it uh, in England, surrounded by his mates, watching a video, smoking a cigarette with a can of beer in his hand, pointing at his throat with a cigarette, just nonchalantly <laughs> sort of hanging off his lips. And I, I thought to myself, I am not coming to see you sitting down there on that couch. You're going to come out here and see me in the hallway. So I ushered him out. At this point, I was really quite, quite annoyed. And I said to him, why, why did you feel a need to call me out at five o'clock in the morning with a sore throat? And he said, oh, well, it wasn't, it wasn't me at all. It was my sister who called you. And I said, oh, let's put that aside. Let's have a look at what's going on. So I examined him from head to foot. And sure enough, he had a a sore throat. And I said to him, well, why didn't you simply take a couple of paracetamol, uh, acetaminophen as you call it in America, and call me later on in the day if you weren't feeling better? And I'll never forget the moment he answered the question. And he said, because I've taken 20 of those already. And I stopped and I said, what do you mean you've taken 20 of those? He said, I've taken 20 of those since midnight and it's five in the morning. And I knew that at that point, he had taken an overdose of that particular medication, which was likely to destroy his liver. If he had taken two more and gone to bed and called me out at midday, he, he would have lost his liver and probably his life. Anyway, wow. within half an hour, this young man was in 
hospital being detoxified. And it turned out that, that, that he had nasty infection in his throat and he also had paracetamol, uh, acetaminophen poisoning. And um, yeah, uh, it saved his life. That particular visit saved his life. And I was just thinking to myself all along about all the lessons that were inherent in that encounter. Now, of course, I've changed a lot of the details as I recount them to protect somebody's privacy. But essentially, that's what happened. And, you know, I was thinking about myself in that situation and my mood as I arrived at the home. The fact that I had taken the time to seek more information. The fact that I was examining this young man in very difficult circumstances in a very dark hallway, uh, dealing with somebody whose health literacy was very poor, making an assessment based on information that I had received in terms of the script, you know, what he told me and how I responded to that. And then finally, of course, the action that ultimately saved his life. So yeah, my favorite story. Wow, that's an incredible story. What led you to write a book on this topic after more than 30 years in clinical practice, and at least half of that also doing research in family medicine? A lot of the research that I was doing in the last uh, 30 years was showing what goes wrong in healthcare. Uh, what happens when a diagnosis is missed? Uh, what happens when people have poor health literacy? What happens when people don't change their behavior? When that behavior is part of the reason why they're going to become ill in the longer term. And part of it came out of frustration that whilst we notice things, we always assume that the system has to change, that somehow it's somebody else's fault that we are not able to respond in the way that we could respond in order to improve outcomes for the people who seek our help as doctors. And it occurred to me that that was a cop-out and that there is a lot that we can do to improve outcomes for people, if only we use our agency, if only we exercise the skill that we have, including our ability to observe, in order to respond to what is now a healthcare crisis, not just in the countries where we work, but internationally. So I put all of that together and I thought may maybe there's something that we could say to one another that could um, improve how we feel about what we do, and what ultimately what we do do. Can we take a quick detour through your history? Why did you choose medicine and specifically family medicine? Yeah, that's a great question. And I wish I had a, a fantastic answer that says, oh, you know, I volunteered in some hospital somewhere and saw <laughs> lots of suffering, or I had a relative who had some awful disease. But the truth is, for many of us doctors, the reason we end up in medicine is because we were very academically gifted. And we ended up in an environment where that academic gift was rewarded with opportunities. And that happened to me. So my family moved from Africa in the 1970s, as uh, essentially as economic migrants, to live in, in the Republic of Ireland, where education was a very big deal. And coming from an Indian ethnic background, this was something that was immediately immediately resonated with the family and I was encouraged to to do well at school. Uh, I mean I wasn't very good at sport, but I could I could study well. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I ended up doing really quite well in high school. 
And in Ireland at the time, if you did well at high school, you got lots of points that allowed you opportunities for courses in universities. And and guess what? The highest points, the, the students with the highest points were offered the opportunity to study medicine. So at the age of 17, I ended up in medical school. And from there, I essentially followed the path that most academics follow. I did well as an academic and, yeah, ended up doing medicine. What is the theatre model and why did you frame it that way? Okay, so the theatre model really comes out of my training as a family doctor. And I went into family medicine largely because the doctors that I had come across as a migrant to Ireland the best doctors were, the, were our family doctors. They were very, very welcoming. We were a very vulnerable population, very vulnerable family. You know, we'd moved mm-hmm. culturally, we'd moved geographically, we'd moved in all kinds of ways, and they made us feel welcome. They made us feel safe. I was diagnosed with asthma uh, as a young child uh, in, in Ireland, and I remember feeling so much better having seen the family doctor uh, on mm-hmm. many occasions, which is, uh, you know what happens when you live in that climate um, and you end up with respiratory infections and so on. So my kind of bent was towards family medicine and thankfully I did go into family medicine. And the theatre model grew out of my understanding of what that is all about. And so it occurred to me at some point that a lot of what doctors do actually cast them as actors in a play. So when we see ourselves in practice, if we were to see ourselves from the outside, we have a persona that we have. So the persona that I have when I'm in practice is very different from the persona that I have sitting at our dinner table or sitting uh, or lying in the yoga mat in the yoga studio or shopping or whatever. It's a different persona and it's a very distinctive persona. And I need to have that persona in order to respond to the needs of the other actor who comes into the space, who is the patient. The, the patient doesn't need to see me as the guy lying on the yoga mat or the guy doing his shopping. <laughs> they need to see me as somebody who has a quite a different perspective. And to make them feel safe, I have to have, I have, to have this particular role. Now I thought, well, if there's that role, what else about this makes it like a theatre? And it was a case of seeing the space that I was in as a stage. So in terms of the architecture and the design and all of that, which is put in front of the the other actor, makes a big difference to how they respond to me in my role. So the seating arrangements, the colours, the smell, the sights, the props that we have all around us. And we all have props as doctors. We've got our stethoscope usually uh, nonchalantly hung around our our neck. We have oroscopes on the on the desk. We've got things that you don't normally see when you go shopping, let's put it that way. So these are the props. And then there's the script. And the script is quite distinctive. You know the script because you've heard it. What can I do for you today? You know, where does it hurt? There are certain words that we use that are quite normal in that setting, but would be quite abnormal if you were to to have them said to you in a post office. There's a, there's a very distinctive script that's used there. And patients use scripts as well. They talk to us about the worst possible pain or is there 
a, a treatment that I can, is there some medication I can take for this? Or tell me about that surgery. There are various things that they say and the way that they say them that are very much like a theater. And then there's the, the action, the action that's taken. It's quite distinctive. Nowhere in any other setting are you allowed to intimately examine the person that you're interacting with other than in medicine. There's a massive amount of equity in that. And that is very much part of the action that happens within that setting of the doctor-patient interaction. It is part of what is accepted as normal. The role of the medicine man is socially determined. It's what we expect. It's what makes us feel safe. It's what gets our bodies, our immune systems, a chance to, to actually fight this virus or whatever it happens to be that we are dealing with at the time. So there's the action. So you could, there you have at the stage, the props, the actors, the script, and the action. And that's what I framed as the theatre model. And in the book, I actually describe all of those in relation to the stories that I uh, tell about various um, doctor-patient interactions and how they reflect that theatre model. Thank you for explaining that. So does this give the reader a bigger awareness of what's going on from the patient perspective or from the physician perspective? If, if there's, for example, a physician who is reading the book and there is this, there this hope that they will see this more consciously and become more conscientious of the way that their role is played within the environment. Well, I wouldn't want to say that this is any, there's anything new about this. It, this, a lot of this is already out there. And, you know, if whether you read patient encounters or whether you read consultation skills as they're described in many medical textbooks, there isn't anything new about it. What's new about it is, I guess, here we're looking at it. We're taking a helicopter view of that encounter and we're saying, yeah, Certainly the interaction was important, but what about the seating arrangements? What about the colors that the patient's looking at? What about the what's on the walls, for example? That's not in a medical textbook. And I, and I can't remember ever being in a medical lecture where somebody said, think about the colors you use on the walls when you're actually uh, got a, a doctor-patient encounter <laughs> happening. Right. Um, you know, think about the right. furniture. Nobody says anything about it. Think about the parking arrangements. Think about the 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 desk. Think about the reception area where patients actually come in and are welcomed into this healing space. We don't think about those things. And what I'm hoping is that this will increase that awareness amongst our colleagues. Do you give any, I think that's fantastic. Do you give any examples in your book of this sort of evidence-based design basically is what you're talking about or the psychology of the space? I would be very loath to talk in any uh, evidence-based way because I'm not uh, a designer and I'm not an architect and I'm not a psychologist. But what I can do is talk about how it felt from my perspective with that lens on and often thinking about how I've experienced healthcare the healthcare that I've experienced is very much the healthcare that I'm sure you and others have experienced of going into a factory setting, like a bus depot, and you go in and it feels cold and it feels smelly and it feels right. not welcoming. Uh, and it feels like the person hasn't taken into account my persona as an actor. 
and has made assumptions that are that I that simply by educating me, I'm going to change my mind about what they're going to be talking about and not taking into account the context in which I bring myself as an actor, as a patient, to that encounter. And in fact, doctors are the same. Doctors don't take into account their own prejudices that are at the back of their minds. And most of us are 50 plus years old. That's very different experience that you bring to that than that of a 20-year-old who's coming to you with their issues. And you need to step out of that and step away and see how that might play out. Who else needs to be involved in improving healthcare outcomes? I think we often assume that it's all down to doctors. And certainly that was the case when I was doing research. A lot of the research was focused on what doctors could do. But I am increasingly convinced not just in my research, but also in my conversations uh, on this podcast and many other podcasts that I listen to, that so many other people have so much to offer who are not in the medical field, who are not even healthcare practitioners. So I'm thinking about people like Michael Bungay-Sanier, who talks about the advice trap in his latest book. And he talks to us about how we, how we converse with people in a setting where we want to offer advice, but we shouldn't. We should be stepping back and allowing them to tell us the context in which they're presenting their issues before we jump in with the advice. And and that's, I guess, uh, made me realize, and particularly in terms of the script of uh, the script that we have in that encounter between the doctor and the patient, how important it is to listen to other perspectives I mean, he comes from a business background, and yet what he's offering in terms of improving the script is so radical and such a breath of fresh air that it's something I think we all doctors should take into account. So that's the script. If you look at design and architecture, there's so much more designers and architects have to offer in terms of improving the space, refreshing it. I mean, you, you've talked about this yourself, Cheryl. <laughs> yes, it's one of my favorite subjects. <laughs> so, so you say something. What, what do you think? I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you have thoughts about this. I do. I have a lot of thoughts about it. And I love, I, I haven't read the whole book, as I told you, but I've read a lot of it and I'm excited to finish reading it. And I love this exploration of these ideas. And I'm curious if, you know, other doctors or medical students can explore these ideas for themselves because of course I, you know, this is my field and there's so much evidence-based design. There's so many things changing in the United States that I see in Canada. And I don't know about Australia and other countries so much, but I believe that that evidence-based design is having more of an effect or um, is inspiring others like physicians themselves to take matters into their own hands and consider the environment, consider the space, consider the colors, consider the psychology of the person through the psychology of the space. So my question to you is how can doctors or medical students explore these ideas for themselves? I think the first thing to acknowledge is that, uh, and particularly in the, in the awful situation that we find ourselves in, right now with the COVID virus, et cetera, that people are very overwhelmed with just, just getting through the day. But mm-hmm. it, it's, that's not necessarily anything new. We've had these crises to a lesser extent throughout uh, our training and throughout even before all this unfolded. So 
for us, it's very much a case of taking time to pause at some point and thinking about the last time that we went into the setting as patient or the last time we had a good or bad outcome from our encounter in healthcare. And I think that very much is about reflection. And we talk a lot in our, in our medical school about reflection and the importance of reflection. Reflection involves also, and most importantly, seeing things from the other person's point of view. So if you were a, a medical student or a, or a doctor, how about going in early one day and sitting in your own waiting room and looking around and seeing what this, what would this feel like if I were waiting here to see see that doctor? How would I like to be mm-hmm. welcomed into this space? How would I like the doctor to greet me? Uh, what would happen once I go into that room? How, where do I want the doctor to be looking? How would I like them to be sitting? Where would I like them to be making eye contact? Where would I like them? Would, would I like them to examine me? Or is that really not necessary? And if they order a test or send me, you know, send me out with a prescription, how much have they explained about the burden that I'm going to be placed on by taking this advice? Because Often when we make a diagnosis, what we don't understand is that we are actually placing a great burden on those people. Uh, I accept that you have, the, the burden is almost sometimes necessary, as in the case of somebody with diabetes, which change their diet and make appointments to go places and make restrictions in their lives and pay medical bills and whatever else, they are burdens. But we need to take all of that into account as and be very cognizant of that as we offer that service. Because at the end of the day, if our patients do not take our advice, they do not accept our treatment, or if they do and they come to harm, that's a big responsibility on your shoulders. Mm -hmm, I agree. What I love about the art of doctoring so much is that you bring together this idea of the doctor being a good listener and you bring together the stories and you bring together the space and you bring together all these different elements and the script and the theater model and you present this whole, you know, whole view of what it means to have your own practice and be a doctor. And this is very exciting. And I think that more people are listening and making these changes. And I think this book is really important. So... What else needs to be involved in improving healthcare outcomes? Did I ask you that question already? Uh, I'm not sure, but I think <laughs> I'm happy to, to add a little last comment to that. And that is really, we need to take stock of where we are. The healthcare okay. machinery is not about to get richer. It's not about to get more resource. It's not about, we're not about to get more of anything. In fact, we're right. likely to get less as we're already experiencing. We get less of everything that seemingly we needed in order to survive um, the healthcare, uh, in the healthcare industry. Now, if that's the case, we need to be thinking about how we can be much more effective. And given that we're not going to have more of something, uh, the one thing that we need to bring more of into this business, if we want to call it a business, and I don't like using that word, is mm-hmm. we need to bring more of ourselves. And I think that's what this is all about. Moyas, we're we're at the end of our time together, and it's been such a pleasure and such a treat to be able to interview you on your own show. My last question to you is, where can listeners buy this book? Uh, The book is is on Amazon. Um, It was 
published by Perceptive Press. We've not put it in bookshops or, or anywhere else for that matter. It is on Amazon. It is available online. The Kindle version is very cheap. I think it's about $2 or something. And then the, the paperback, uh, the paper version is also available on Amazon. You may have to wait a little bit to get it at this time, but yeah, that's where it's at. Well, thank you, Moyaz. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much, Cheryl. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.